Hey everyone, it's great to see you this morning. Please, if you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 11. Don't worry if you haven't got a Bible, but if you've got one physical or on your phone, it'd be great to have Isaiah 11 open. Uh, The title I've given this morning's message is Beholding the Greatness of Christ This Christmas. Because if you haven't noticed already, Christmas is fast approaching and there's all sorts going on. Uh, And so it's good for us to prepare our hearts for the... the, um, but what Christmas is, is truly all about. So beholding the greatness of Christ this Christmas. And I wonder actually if, like me, you find that sometimes things that once seemed really special and really valuable begin to lose their shine. Now sometimes things lose their shine, of course, because uh, they weren't that special in the first place. Maybe that new gadget or toy or item of clothing or furniture that we were so excited about getting last Christmas. The, the thing that we expected to be one of the highlights of Christmas 2020 is now tucked away on a shelf or it's in the back of a wardrobe or maybe it's even broken and in the bin just 12 months later. But there are some things in life, aren't there, that we know shouldn't lose their priceless value in our eyes. Things we know we should not take for granted. Uh, things like our friends, a spouse, children, parents, the roof over our heads, uh, a warm summer's day, which is a long-distant memory. When we stop to consider these kind of things, we realize again how valuable they are. But many of us here this morning also know that one thing above all else that we should never take for granted or come to value less is Jesus himself. We know he's the pearl of greatest price. That he is the greatest gift God has ever given us and one who should never lose his shine. But it's difficult, isn't it? Because in reality, we all experience times and seasons when Jesus does appear to lose his shine in our eyes. Even though we know he shouldn't, in practice, he does. We become too familiar with him in the wrong sense. He just becomes another part of the furniture of our lives as we get on with all the other needs and pleasures and things around us. And this, I think, can happen at any time of year and at any season in our lives. But I want to suggest this morning that, at least for me, sometimes this can happen most of all at Christmas. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Even though it's got Christ right there in the name, Christ Mass, there's just so much to do, isn't there? at this time of year, just so much to get right at Christmas. And as a result, Jesus appears to shrink before our very eyes. We want to get the right presents for everyone. We want to plan the right Christmas outings. We want to prepare the best food. We want to send meaningful Christmas cards. We want to make the decorations really festive and cozy and special inside and outside of our house. And the bigger these things get and the busier they get, the smaller Jesus can seem to appear before our eyes. Just take the nativity scene, if you've got one set out at home now. We have a nativity scene that's on our mantelpiece, I think it is, this year, and um, just one part of the the effect of the um, decorations in our house. And even looking at the nativity scene, there's there might be a star, and there's shepherds, and there's wise men, and there's a stable, and there's Mary and Joseph, and Jesus is often the smallest piece in the nativity often the least interesting piece. And perhaps you've even lost the baby 
figure of Jesus in your nativity set. You don't know where he's gone. It's like a living illustration right there in front of us of what can easily take place in our hearts as we juggle everything at Christmas. So what's the solution? Well, it could be to carve out more Jesus time at Christmas. It could be to read a Christmas devotional. And by the way, there's the Christmas devotionals we were given out last week. There's more of them at the back this week. So do take one of those. It could be to pin things up around our house or on our desk at work, particularly through Advent, that will remind us of the true reason for the season. And those can be good things. I'm not knocking any of those things. They can be really helpful. They can help us to get to the real solution, but they're not the ultimate solution in and of themselves. The real solution is this. What we need is not just to keep looking at Jesus. We need to see Jesus in proper proportion to everything else. We need to look and see again with freshly opened eyes just how great and glorious and magnificent and mighty he is compared to everything else that's going on at Christmas. What we need to see is Jesus in his true proportions. And that's what this morning's passage in Isaiah that we're going to read is all about. It's ideally suited to helping us do this. Now, these words in Isaiah 11 were written some 700 years before Christ was born, at a time when God's Old Testament people were living through some of their darkest days. They were under threat of invasion. They were facing God's judgment, and in day-to-day life, they were just experiencing hardship and struggle and injustice and wickedness and destruction and even death. And in almost, in almost every way, The darkness of their days is very much like the darkness of our day. Everywhere we look, we see evidence that the world is not as it should be. That that, that we're, we're not as we should be. The world is a mess of sin and suffering, and our own lives are a mess of sin and suffering as well. And what the people of Isaiah's day needed most, and what the people of our day still need the most, is hope. We need hope of rescue. We need hope of somehow someone coming and putting right all that has gone so terribly wrong and into this wrongness and into this mess and into the brokenness of this world, Isaiah announces a message of hope. He announces a coming king, but not just any king. He announces a king who is destined to blow every other king out of the water in terms of his greatness and his goodness and the hope that he will bring. There's an old Christmas carol that in its title asks the question, what child is this? And we would answer, because we we know what's going on at Christmas, we would answer, well, he's the king, of course. This child is the king. But this passage this morning invites us to dig down deeper to open our eyes wider and ask, yes, the promised child is a king, but what kind of king will he be? What kind of king was born that night in Bethlehem? How powerful is he to rescue? How good and wonderful and mighty is he in proportion to all of the other good things that we hope and long for at Christmas time? In these 10 verses, which we'll read in just a moment, we're told three things about this promised king. Three things to help us see him in his proper proportions. We're told about the king's credentials. 
We're told about the king's character and we're told about the king's kingdom. So they're going to be our three headings for this morning. The king's credentials, the king's character and the king's kingdom. And it's as if Isaiah is issuing us with an invitation this morning. As if he's saying, Grace Church, come gather around and behold the greatness of your king this morning. So here is what he says. Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and, their, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. First of all then, I know there's a lot there, and it's, it's poetic as well, but we're going to work through this. First of all, we see the king's credentials. This is verses 1 and 2. We see the king's credentials. Credentials are really important. We need to see someone's credentials to ensure that they're qualified and capable to do the job that's been given to them. So, if you go to see a doctor, you need to know that the doctor has the right credentials in order to be confident they can treat you. If you go to see a lawyer, you want to know that they have the right credentials to be confident that they can defend you. If you have a teacher, you want to know they've got the right credentials, the right uh, training for us to be confident that they can teach us and kings and leaders need credentials too, because we entrust our lives to them to lead us. Now, for God's Old Testament people, a king's credentials were especially important, because it was the king's job not just to lead God's people in being faithful to God, but it was also the king's job to save them when they turned away into sin and fell into danger. And now here in Isaiah 11, the people find themselves in the utmost danger. They're in a mess. They have wandered far from God. They are in grave peril and only a king can save them. But what kind of king is going to be sufficient for this task? What credentials must this promised king have to be able to set right all that has gone so badly wrong? Who is sufficient? Well, the first credential on this promised king's CV is an encouraging one. 
He's going to be better than the best of all earthly kings. Now, for God's people at this point in history, the best king they had ever known was King David. During his lifetime, David, uh, as you may know the stories, he defeated all of Israel's enemies and he gave the people peace and rest. After David, sadly, each successive king, well, each successive king was measured against David and, and he was like the benchmark. Every king was asked of them, are they as good of, as David? And sadly, although some kings were better than others, none of them were found to be of the same caliber as David. None of them brought the same peace and rest to God's people as he did. In fact, tragically, the kings got worse and worse, and in the end, the whole kingdom just kind of uh, was, was destroyed and disappeared. It was lost. The house of Jesse, Jesse was David's dad. The house of Jesse, though once like a strong and healthy tree, has been reduced to a dead-looking stump. All appears lost. But then this promise comes in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So Isaiah announces another king is going to spring forth from David's line. But unlike all the kings who've come before him, he's not just going to be a pale imitation of the great King David. He's going to come directly from the stump of Jesse, which is a, just a poetic way of saying he'll be another king just like David. He will be the real deal. But there's more. Because in verse 10, we're told that he's not only a shoot sort of springing out. Can you picture this sort of dead stump and suddenly one day, oh, there's a shoot coming out again. There's still life here. But we're told he's not only a shoot of Jesse, but also verse 10, the root of Jesse. He is the source of Jesse. Uh, do you remember that incident in John chapter 8 where Jesus said to a group of not very happy Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. That's what Jesus said to them. Well, verse 10 is that kind of statement. Not only is this promised king going to be like another David, this coming king is the one who originally gave life to David. This promised king is the original king. He's the preeminent king of kings. He'll be better than the best of all earthly kings. That's the first credential on his kingly CV. And the second credential that's also there is that he'll be full of the Holy Spirit. See that in verse 2? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this king. Now Israel's kings weren't actually crowned like our kings and queens get crowned at their coronation. They weren't crowned. They were instead anointed with oil. So the king was literally the anointed one, which incidentally is what the word Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek actually means. It means anointed one. So King David was an anointed one. He was a, a Christ with a little c. He was an anointed one. But what mattered more than the king's outward anointing and a bit of oil getting sprinkled on them was whether the king was anointed on the inside by the spirit of the Lord. Only through the anointing of the Holy Spirit was the king really qualified to save and rule God's people. So in 1 Samuel 16, we're told that from the day that King David was anointed with oil, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Well, says Isaiah, this promised future king 
this greatest of all kings, will also be anointed with the Spirit, just like David. But there's a difference of proportion again as well. On this coming king, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest without measure. God will be pleased to have his Spirit come upon this king in absolute limitless fullness. Which is exactly what happens at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, Matthew writes. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism is the fulfillment of Isaiah 11 verse 2. Jesus is the promised king, anointed by the Father with all the fullness of the Spirit, equipping him for his kingly role, equipping him to rescue and rule like no one had ever done before, like no other king the world has ever seen. And then Isaiah explains the significance of this anointing. On him, he says, shall be the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So he's going to be the wisest of all kings. On him shall be the spirit of counsel and might, meaning he'll always know the right course of action to take in every situation. And he'll always have the the might and the power at his disposal to do what is right and good for his people, to rescue his people. And on him shall be the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This king will be holy, says Isaiah. He will perfectly know and fear the Lord. Even the very best, best intentioned of our earthly rulers, be they kings or prime ministers or um, presidents or, or, or whatever, even the best intentioned of earthly rulers are hampered by their own limitations, whether it's uh, limitations of intellect or wisdom or power or personal holiness. But not this king. He's a king without limits. On him the spirit of the Lord will rest in incomparable fullness to anoint him and empower him for all that God has called him to do on behalf of his people. To fulfill all of God's plans for their rescue and redemption. And this is the king who was born in Bethlehem. This is he who was once a child in a manger, could be held in our hands. This is him. These are King Jesus' glorious credentials. But Isaiah isn't finished yet. He goes on, secondly, to tell us about the king's character. This is verses 3 to 5. Have a look down if you've got it there. The king's character. Let me say, first of all, clothing in the Bible is really significant. It's used to represent both the inner character of a person, but also the readiness of a person on the outside to fulfill a particular purpose. So according to verse 5, this promised king will be clothed in faithfulness and righteousness. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And Isaiah then tells us what this looks like in practice in verses 3 and 4. He tells us about the king's heart and the king's actions. 
Inwardly, he says, this king delights in God. Outwardly, this king does what is right. So inwardly, first of all, look at verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now that word delight comes from the words or the idea of a scent. Uh, you know, the scent, a scent that you smell. Like the scent of a beautiful flower or the smell of freshly mown grass on a summer's day or the smell of fresh coffee on a Sunday morning. When we delight in things in that way, it's not just a theoretical delight. Our senses are engaged when we catch a scent of these things. Our, our whole body uh, responds and is lifted with delight and joy. And in that moment, all of our attention is fixed on that object. We're captivated and enraptured by it. And maybe for you, coffee is the big one in the morning. The, oh, you know, I'm following the smell of coffee. I could close my eyes and still find my way to it because we're captivated and enraptured by it. Well, this king is captivated by and wholly delighted in the majesty and the glory of God. This king will love the Lord his God with heart, soul, mind and strength, which is not only admirable in this inner king, but it's also essential for the people this king is coming to save. Because in the Old Testament, the king was the representative worshipper. When he obeyed and honoured God, the people of God were blessed. But when the king disobeyed or rebelled against God, the whole nation were ultimately, in the end, judged and punished. And what becomes clear, even clearer in the New Testament is that every man and woman and boy and girl needs, above all else, a perfect, spotless track record in which, in which we can stand blameless before God. We need a, a sinless righteousness that we cannot produce for ourselves. We need a king. We need a king who can be perfectly righteous for us. One who will love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and whose perfect righteousness can then be given and credited to our accounts. Jesus is that king qualified to save sinners because he's first of all a king whose whole capacity for delight is centered upon God, revering and fearing the Lord. But I said a moment ago that a person's clothing didn't just, wasn't just to speak of what was going on on the inside. It was also revealing a person's outward purpose. A bit like a firefighter. Imagine a firefighter going to fight a fire. Uh, before he goes in, he puts on or she puts on their, their boots and coat and mask because they're committed to actually going out and fighting fires and saving lives. Well, this promised king will wear faithfulness and righteousness like a belt because he's coming ready for action he comes committed to doing everything necessary to fulfill God's saving purposes so verse 3 and 4 he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. In essence, this king is coming to both judge and to save. But the special emphasis in those words I just read are on what he's going to do for the poor. 
Not the financially poor, but the spiritually poor. Those who know they are spiritually sick and who are looking to God to save them. He's going to do something special for those who know they're spiritually bankrupt and who look to God to cancel their debt. As Matthew Henry writes on this verse, he will be their protector because they are poor in spirit. It is the duty of princes to defend and deliver the poor and the honor of Christ that he is the poor man's king. What it is. Oh, what it is to have a king like this. So many kings and rulers in our world today are self-serving and power-hungry and willing to cross the line of right and wrong in order to protect themselves and extend their might, but not King Jesus. This king, this king born in a humble stable is altogether good. He's the king that the storytellers could only dream of coming up with, but he really came. He's really real. He really is the king, the one who was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. He also came dressed in righteousness and faithfulness, ready for action, born to die, and committed to lay down his life to rescue the needy and the helpless. That is the king's character. And finally, Isaiah describes the king's kingdom. And I hope already our vision of Jesus is growing again in proportion to all other things, that he's getting bigger before our eyes, but still we have to come, the king's kingdom, verses 6 to 10. In these final verses of our passage this morning, Isaiah is intentionally filling it with echoes of life in the Garden of Eden. But he's not just remembering the good old days of how things used to be. And I don't know about you, sometimes I find myself doing this at Christmas. Uh, it's tempting for me to reminisce about, oh, Christmas is of old, and they were always snowy and white, and everything was harmonious and great. Here Isaiah is not doing that. He's actually looking forward to the promise of something better that is yet to come. And he's looking into our future as well as his own. And what he reveals are four incomparably glorious things that will ultimately, ultimately be true of this king's future kingdom, of the new world that this king is going to come back one day to bring. But here's the thing. There are also four things that actually began to dawn and break in upon this world on the night that Christ was born in Bethlehem. Things that, for all who receive Jesus as their king, we can begin to enjoy these four blessings even today. So the first thing that will characterize this king's kingdom is peace. Verses 6 and 7. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. This is a picture of nature itself being redeemed from the curse. And it's a picture of men and women living at peace with the creation and with our creator. Now perhaps the thing you're most looking forward to this Christmas, above all else, is getting some peace from the outside world. And perhaps part of the reason you want some peace and rest in your life is that your life and your, your work and all that you've gone through this past year has been really hard. Perhaps if you're honest, it's been frustrating and disappointing and painful. A year full of mishaps and mistakes. 
Perhaps you've experienced hostility or obstacles of every kind. Perhaps this Christmas you just want to hide away and, and forget about the fact that you've got to return to real life after Christmas. But listen to the promise of verse 6. The promise of verse 6 is it won't always be this way. Because when this king's kingdom comes back in all of its fullness, the whole of creation will be at peace once again. And our relationship with the world, our, the things we get to do on behalf of the king, our daily work even, will be altogether peaceful and pleasurable and satisfying. Any little bit of peace we get to experience this Christmas is like a taster, just a small taster, of what's to come when Jesus, our king, returns but even before that day we can rest in the knowledge that we have the greatest peace of all we have it right now today we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ that's the first thing this king's kingdom brings it brings peace the second thing it brings is safety verse 8 we live in a world that is not safe there are wars and natural disasters and tragic accidents, terminal illness and loved ones lost. There are dangers and difficulties awaiting us around every corner. But one day, every threat and every danger will be removed. They'll all be gone when the king who came to rescue us from sin and death comes again to rescue us from every pain and trial. That's the promise of verse 8. In this king's kingdom, even what seems like the most natural of threats and dangers will be no more. The nursing child shall play over the, the whole of the cobra. There will be nothing left to fear. And with that, there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more pain, no more loneliness, no more heartache, no more worry-filled nights or anxiety-ridden days Christ the King will make his people safe. His kingdom promises peace. It promises safety. Thirdly, the best thing about this King's promised kingdom is that God himself will be there. Verse 9, the King will be there in his kingdom. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Isaiah is saying is there will be complete peace and safety in every corner of the earth because the king will be everywhere. The whole earth will be God's dwelling place, his holy mountain. This is the thing that makes this coming king and this coming kingdom so good. This is the work that began when Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, was born into our world. This is the outcome that was won and made certain when Christ took upon himself all the guilt and punishment for sin that once barred us from knowing and being with God. Jesus, the incarnate king, has made it possible for you and I to know God today. Now, none of us right now knows what gifts we're going to get this Christmas, or at least we shouldn't. I, no one's been peeping. Uh, I used to do that a lot as a child. That's awful, isn't it? Um, oh, I've got Noah's here. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but 
that's assuming we don't know what we're going to get, we can already judge what the best gift is that we've got this Christmas. The best gift we're going to have this Christmas is Jesus. God with us. We might come down on Christmas morning to find that the whole house has been burgled and there are no presents left under the tree, but this one gift cannot be taken from us and it far outweighs all the rest. More realistically, though, assuming there are no burglars on Christmas morning, we might still feel that no gift we find under the tree this year will make up for the absence of the thing that we have been hoping for and praying for throughout 2021. Whether it was our longing for a spouse we don't have, or a child, or a new job, or for a loved one to be saved or made well, or just wishing that someone was still here with us when they've so sadly passed away. These are good gifts to desire, and it's understandable that God's decision to withhold them from us will sometimes lead us to struggle and wonder why. We don't need to minimize the pain that the absence of some of these things might cause to us this Christmas. The absence of things that would seem to be such good gifts from God and we don't quite understand why he's chosen to withhold them. But we must keep this one ultimate reality in view. If we're to see things as they really are, that he has not withheld the greatest of all gifts from us. The greatest gift God could give us is already ours if we've come to know and trust in Jesus. And this greatest gift of all gifts cannot be taken from us. We have Emmanuel, God, with us. We know the King, and better yet, the King knows us. And then fourthly and finally, Christ's kingdom promises the gift of home. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, the word used here for resting place is actually another word for home. In the Old Testament, the promised land was described as a resting place for God's people. It was to be a real home for them where they could live with God. But sin, as I've already said, led to them losing their home and losing that resting place. But now, the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, has been lifted up, lifted up on the cross as a signal to all peoples that he has secured a new home for those who've wandered far from God. And it will be glorious, Isaiah says. It will be glorious. There are lots of echoes of home at Christmas time, I think. It's a time when we want to be home with our families, or a time when we wish we could be home with family. It can be a time we wish our family home was a better home, or a fuller home, or a happier home. The impulse for home is good and natural at Christmas. But this is not our true home. Our aching desire for a true home won't be met in even the most perfect Christmas lunch or the most harmonious family experience or the most perfectly executed Christmas Day schedule. These longings we all have for home can only finally be met by the king who left his home to enter our world, to come and seek and save the lost and the homeless, He came to rescue the runaways who find themselves far from God. He came to make a way for you and I to really go home. 
And it's an invitation that's open to all. Just as Isaiah promised in verse 10, the coming of Christ that first Christmas was like a signal, a beacon, an invitation to all nations to come and inquire of him. And nearly a thousand years later in Romans 15, Paul quotes this very verse to explain his ambition to take the gospel to the nations. This verse gave Paul his mandate to take the gospel forth, to reach the lost with the good news of Christ's invitation. And it should make us ambitious to do this very same thing this Christmas. And I actually found this really reassuring, and I'll explain why. Uh, it can seem, I think, like there are so many competing goals and desires at Christmas time. We want joy and gladness. We want peace and rest. And we have a longing to go home. And we want to reach more people with the good news about Jesus. And we can wonder, well, which one of these is the right desire to have at Christmas? Which one is the best desire? And the answer given in Isaiah 11 is, they all are. They're not in competition with each other at all. They're all right responses to the coming of Christ the King at Christmas. So, we have a great King to behold and be glad in this year. We have a Christ to enjoy, a Christ to find rest in, a Christ to tell others about, and a Christ who will one day take us home. At first glance, he can look like just one small element among so many other things that are going on at Christmas time. But seen in his true proportions, he reigns victorious over all those other things. He's the king over all. And that is the best news. He is big enough and mighty enough and good enough to bear all our troubles, to bear all our hopes and our fears and our failings. He's bigger and better than every other king. Bigger and better than every other thing. And I've got to share this with you as I end. There's a, there's a wonderful exchange of conversation that goes on at the, at, the, at the very end of the very last book of you know, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. And the children in the story, along with many others, have stepped into what looks like a really insignificant little stable. Only to find that they've actually stepped into a whole new world, a, a new creation. One that is more real and more solid and more immeasurably wonderful than the world they once knew. And as they step into the stable, one character simply yet profoundly remarks, its inside is bigger than its outside. And Lucy replies, yes. And in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. A stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the child who was born in the stable was your son, Christ the King. We thank you that the king in the stable was really bigger than the whole world and that he came as saviour of the world to bring us hope and peace and safety and ultimately to bring us home to you. Father, please help us this Christmas to see our King as he really is, kind enough to shoulder all our sadnesses and sorrows, tender enough to one day wipe away every tear, mighty enough to carry our hopes and our longings, generous and gracious enough to bear our every sin, 
Help us to see our King Jesus, who reigns on high from his throne of grace today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.